I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen, listen for, for the, the word. word. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our podcast today. We will be looking at Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. And at least on first read, this doesn't seem that important of a passage. But I think, as you will see, both Alan and I found all kinds of things to talk about. So, <laughs> um, it, but, so I think you'll be pleasantly surprised on the wealth of things you can talk about. Yeah, you know, yeah, you're right. I mean, at first glance, it might seem like your garden variety healing on the Sabbath, which, you know, there are, a num- there are several of them in the, in the gospel mm-hmm. tradition. Uh, but I would say that our lesson for today is very important, especially in Luke's gospel. It's a kind of, it functions as a kind of reassertion of the original declaration by Jesus at the synagogue in Nazareth that he had come to effect the release of the kingdom of God. And this healing miracle in, in the synagogue um, uh, in Luke 13 is a demonstration of that very, what that release looks like in real life. Yeah. One, one of the things that at least it begins with Jesus teaching, and I, mm-hmm. I think there's some significance to that. There is, yeah, because, um, I, you know, I think Luke just says, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, but I think there's some important signals here that are, that are easy for us to overlook. Teaching, for example, as you mentioned, that was one of the characteristic ways in which Jesus carried out the release mm-hmm. of the kingdom of God. Um, I mean, you you find him teaching in various synagogues in Luke's gospel. He's teaching in the temple toward the end of his ministry. And so this is one of the ways in which he carries out his ministry. Um, I think, again, that we're meant to hear in this another echo of Jesus' inaugural teaching at the synagogue in, Sa- in, in Nazareth where he announced that he had come to bring release. Mm-hmm. Um, and and th- that lead, leads me then to the second uh, signal or clue here, and that is while it's typical of the synoptic tradition to find Jesus teaching in a synagogue on the Sabbath during his Galilean ministry, none of the other synoptic gospels mention Jesus going anywhere near a synagogue during this late stage yeah. in Jesus' mm-hmm. ministry presumably because of the rising conflict with the mm-hmm, Jewish religious mm-hmm. leaders. But again, I think he has his own reasons for reporting this particular episode in a synagogue on the Sabbath. And I, I think, um, you know, part of it is that, you know, one of, the, one of the most important previous times when he was teaching on the synagogue was when he was teaching at Nazareth and, and announcing yeah. his, his ministry release. And I think it is worth mentioning at this point that only Luke in the entire gospel tradition reports this particular healing episode on the Sabbath. Um, this, it's not found anywhere else in the whole gospel. Tradition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think it's one, you know, when I was, when I was reading it again, it, it's one that I, I was, I was, I was reminded of that. I think it's like, oh, I forgot about this one. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think we assume it's more places and it's not. No, and, and, no. and the synoptic gospels, all three report Jesus, uh, healing the man with the withered hand. Yeah. Um, and John reports um, uh, the healing of the man who was by the pool of Bethesda yes, on the yes, Sabbath. Yes. Um, but um, this is the only place where this particular healing episode on the Sabbath is reported. Of yeah. course, and healing on the Sabbath is always a question mark. Is that a is that a work? <laughs> um, is that is that not appropriate? And so, I, why don't you maybe well, that. and it, I mean, it's common in the whole gospel tradition, right. including John's gospel, that Jesus' healings on the Sabbath provoked controversy and even animosity on the part of the Jewish religious leaders. I think this was one of the things that he did that offended them the most because um, Sabbath observance was kind of a boundary marker, kind of like circumcision had right. become for for your Jewishness. Right. And so he was, he was, you know, kind of like the clean and unclean part of the Jewish religion. He was really attacking the, their very identity. So healing, especially on the Sabbath day, um, violated the religious norms about what should and should not be done on the Sabbath in light of the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. And I think, though, that his healing on the Sabbath was another of the characteristic ways in which Jesus fulfilled his ministry to inaugurate the kingdom. And I think that's one of the things that Luke yeah. wants us to see here. Healing on the Sabbath 
was one of the characteristic ways that Jesus fulfilled his mission of inaugurating the kingdom. I, I'm anxious to talk about healing later on the Sabbath, um, maybe in our third segment even, because it's an, it, is an, it is an interesting thing that Jesus does mm-hmm. in the terms of what's holy and what's not holy. And I, I think there's some really interesting cultural and, and, and also learnings for ourselves Surely. in this time um, as we wonder you know, what's appropriately holy. And um, I think it's, anyway, this, this is very interesting. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. And it's interesting as you'll see how the history handles it as well. Yeah. So. Yeah. Now, um, having set the stage for us then, Luke proceeds to say that just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up straight. That's verse 11. Now, this is unusual in the gospel tradition because the people whom Jesus heals on the Sabbath are normally men in the gospel tradition. So this is, again, this is kind of an outlier in that Jesus is healing a woman at the synagogue. And it was just then, as Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, that this woman either entered the synagogue or caught Jesus' attention. Now, the new RSV says she appeared, but there's actually no main verb in this clause Mm. in the Greek New Testament. And most English translations preserve the ambiguity of the Greek text by just simply saying, there was a woman Mm -hmm. with a spirit that had crippled her. I think that is actually an important thing to point out, because appear might cause someone to think that you know, kind she of a magical in. situation. Or she, or, well, she came. She walked in in the middle of Jesus' teaching. Right, right, right. And, and we have no idea when she arrived there. It's just that apparently, I mean, either she entered the synagogue at that point or she caught Jesus' attention at that point. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay, so moving on. Yeah, and there have been efforts to try to identify the precise medical condition this woman suffered from, but Luke really has no interest in that. He (laughs) simply says (laughs) that she had a spirit that crippled her. Literally, um, he describes her as a woman having a spirit of weakness. And she had this this spirit of weakness for 18 years. And the result was more what, what Luke is focusing on. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up straight. In verse 11. Now, while Jesus will add further insights into the nature of her condition, the fact that Luke says she was bent over using sung kupto um, and unable to stand up straight, which is anakupto, mm-hmm. so these are cognate verbs, um, both of these have some resonances in the Septuagint in terms of how this indicates her social position. She yes. was publicly shamed very likely living as an invisible person in the society mm-hmm. of her day and perhaps even positively shunned. And this was something she experienced for 18 years. You know, Alan, this reminds me, because I think, I think they're making a mistake when they try to come up with a physical ailment mm-hmm. for her. That is not what we're told. It's a spiritual mm-hmm. ailment. Well, it's a spiritual and a social condition, it's, right? Exactly. Because it affects her standing in the community. So it reminds me of, and I'm kind of going off on a story, but I used to do um, um, uh, training, one-on-one training with, with, with folks. And I had a woman who came in who could not stand up straight. Mm. Her entire carriage was bent over and it impa- fact, impacted how she walked and how she thought about herself while well, her husband had just divorced her. And it was a social, in her, her circle, it was a real social shame for her. And mm-hmm. so she her whole carriage was down and, and it reminds me of this a little bit that this the the that this how the spirit is impacted impacts mm-hmm. our physical being yeah. so instead of thinking this is physical first which is what our modern day tendency wants to be this is a spiritual element yeah. well yeah. and i think about the emotional burden that she bore from from just the physical burden but also then you right. know the social stigma mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah so then luke tells us that when jesus saw her He called her over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. This is verse 12. Now, it's important to note here that Jesus takes the initiative in approaching her, which is also the case with other Sabbath Mm -hmm. healings in the gospel tradition. That is very interesting because she's a woman who has been outcast, and then Mm -hmm. Jesus is coming to her. That's huge. That's right. He takes the initiative. That's right. And, you know, there's no indication that she came to the synagogue for any other reason than to worship God on this particular day. This is something, I think, that distinguishes some of the other healing miracles. Because, in, as we've seen already, some of the other healing miracles, people seek Jesus out. 
But we have no indication by mm-hmm. Luke that she specifically came to the synagogue to seek Jesus out. Mm-hmm. It just says that she was there, and when Jesus saw her, he, he pronounced her healing. Um, and, and again, I think there's no reason to think she came for the, to the synagogue for any other reason than to worship God on that particular day. And I think part of this is because that Luke is focusing here on the manner in which Jesus fulfilled his ministry of release. And that's what Mm. Luke wants to focus on, is the ministry of release Mm -hmm. in fulfillment Mm -hmm. of the kingdom of God. So Luke does not use the cognate verb of aphasis, which would be aphiemi here. He does use a word that is clearly meant to be understood as a synonym, apoluo. And so Jesus says, you are set free from your weakness, literally. Huh. And, and so, again, I think by, by using that language, Luke wants us to understand that Jesus is fulfilling the ministry of the kingdom, this ministry of release, on the Sabbath day by releasing this woman who had suffered for 18 years. Wow. So, again, the Greek isn't, the, it's not the same verb, or, yeah. you know, it's, it's not the, the verb form for aphesis, ephemi, but it's a, it's a synonym, and it's, me, it's clearly meant, I think, as a reflection, as an echo to that, to that ministry release that that um, Jesus proclaimed okay. at the synagogue at Nazareth. I think apoluo and afiemi are, are verbs that can be used uh, somewhat interchangeably. Okay. Yeah. Now, Luke proceeds to tell us that when he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. And as is the case with most of Jesus' miracles, the effect is immediate. And in this particular healing, he heals her by laying his hands on her. And, you know, as I was thinking about this, I can only imagine what she must have felt after 18 years of suffering, not only her physical ailment, but also the social No one laid their hands on her. No one Uh -uh. even touching her because she was viewed as an outcast. Now, I think we get an impression of that when Luke tells us that she stood up straight and began praising God. I mean, obviously she she was overjoyed. But I think it's important to note as well that in Luke's gospel, as in the other synoptic gospels, the appropriate response to Jesus' healing miracles is to praise God. Yeah, 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 yeah. So this is a demonstration of what God is doing. What God is doing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and that's important. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, however, you know, I think it's interesting because here's this simple woman. She comes, she's been over for 18 years, she's released from her bondage, and she praises God. I mean, the the response of the synagogue leader could not be more uh, contrasting, (laughs) you know. I mean, you know, it's just so opposite. Luke tells us that the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, there are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured and not on the Sabbath day. So, uh, you know, I mean, it's just such a, just a drastic contrast from the woman praising God. Well, and it's, it's, you know, socially, it's one of those, it's one of those things where all of a sudden Jesus has changed. What is their social norm? Mm -hmm. They are used to having her in that position. It reminds me of, of Gerasene demoniac. They were used to having him. They were used to having her there. And they freaked out when they saw him clothed in his right mind. Oh, this woman, you know, we we have, how can she be in this? She can't be restored to community, full community, right? Exactly. Because that, that, that that upsets the status quo. Exactly. Definitely. So the, the synagogue leader was an official at the synagogue. Since the synagogue was a local gathering, they did not always have access to a professional teacher of the Torah mm-hmm. or a rabbi. And so the synagogue leader was a local official, typically elected from within the congregation. And his job would have been to maintain the worship of God and to serve as sort of the local authority on interpreting matters of the Torah. And that's what he's doing here. Now, the, the new RSV is alone in the English Bible tradition in translating the imperfect verb elegan as kept saying i mean literally it was he was saying but it could be he kept saying over and over again but all the other english versions simply render it he said and that's also a possible translation of the imperfect verb Mm. now one exception is the new american standard bible it says he began saying which is again another nuance of the of the imperfect verb so all three of those translations are possible I, I think what's clear is that the that that the synagogue leader was indignant and had that his pronouncement was meant to be seen as a forceful one, and perhaps that's why um, the new RSV 
translate the way it does. He kept saying, you know, the idea is that he was repeating it over and over again. Oh, yeah. So what do do you like? Honestly, I'm not sure. I mean, again, I think it's clear that this was a forceful declaration on his part. Uh, One translation said he shouted. Oh, which I think. I, I, like I don't that. remember which one that is, but I think that one really kind of gets at it better than he kept oh, saying. Oh, wow. Yeah, that has yeah. a real power to it. has a real it bite and, to yeah, it, right? Uh-huh. And so, um, uh, anyway, they're, they're just, I just wanted to note that the new RSV is kind of alone in, in, in this translation. Now, the synagogue leader then referred the, the congregation to the Sabbath commandment. There are six days mm-hmm. on which work ought to be done. And that this is considered to be a divine mandate is indicated by the use of the impersonal verb die, delta epsilon iota, which we've seen before in connection with Jesus' passion predictions. Um, He adds his interpretation then to the commandment, come on those days to be cured and not on the Sabbath. So the commandment is there's six days on which work ought to be done. And so the interpretation is, so if you need to be cured, don't come on the Sabbath day to be cured. In in a way, though, it... it it really, it really is a is a, a finger wagging at Jesus, saying you're really not qualified. I mean, God can do whatever, but you aren't God. And in that, maybe I'm pulling that too far, but but I would say he's he's reinforcing the norm about the Sabbath because there is some evidence that there was actually a scribal norm that in cases that were life threatening, one could cure on the Sabbath, but if the cure could wait. That was what was expected. Well, this you, obviously was it life-threatening because this was part of the status quo. Right, I mean, exactly. this was part of just exactly. allowing the world to just stay the, the same. same. Exactly. So, you know, I think it's ironic that this rebuke was directed to the audience and not to Jesus, and perhaps even indirectly to the woman herself, you know, come on oh. one of those days mm-hmm. to be healed. And yet, Luke identifies Jesus as the Lord mm-hmm. here in verse 15, which is sort of giving us a, 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 a clue that he's going to be presenting Jesus' interpretive authority as such that supersedes that of the synagogue leader. So the synagogue leader, his, his role was to be the, the authority figure who was giving a, an interpretation of the, of the Torah. And he gives that, right? He, he, he quotes the commandment and he gives his interpretation. But Luke calling Jesus the Lord sets us up already for the fact that, no, sorry, he's, he, he, there's somebody more important than, than, than the synagogue leader here. And yeah, yeah, yeah. He's going to basic, Jesus basically directly challenges the prevailing mm-hmm. view yeah. of what it means to honor God on the Sabbath day. And he does so in a couple of ways. First, he reminds them all that they untie or release, and it's luo, which is oh, yeah. which is the root yeah, of apoluo, yeah. right? He they, they all untie or release their livestock from the manger to let them drink on the Sabbath. And it may be that Jesus is referring the synagogue leader back to the commandment because Deuteronomy 5.13 talks about six days on which work is to be done. Deuteronomy 5.14 continues by implying the prohibit, prohibition of work on the Sabbath even to one's livestock, one's slaves, and even to the resident alien living among them. Hmm. But Jesus uses the lesser to the greater logic to argue that this woman, who was a daughter of Abraham and therefore deserving of the promise made to Abraham and all his descendants, as we heard in Luke 155 Mm -hmm, at the end of the mm -hmm. Magnificat, um, this woman who was bound, and the verb is deo, which is the opposite of luo, Uh for 18 long years has much more claim than livestock to be released from her bondage on the Sabbath day. Wow. Wow. That is, there's a lot going on there. Right. And so wow. basically Jesus uses just sort of a logical uh, approach here. You know, if you can untie and release, you know, your, your livestock so that they can get a drink of water, right. how much more should this daughter of Abraham be released? Right. Now, right. one of the interesting things I found in this is that um, the, the, the phrase daughter of Abraham or son of Abraham is used a couple of times in Luke's gospel. It's used here and it's used for Zacchaeus for people who would not have been expected. They would have been expected to be outside the promise of Abraham right. and the blessings that, that it brought. Right. But, but in Luke's gospel, Jesus uses this phrase, daughter of Abraham or son of Abraham, to include them Interesting. in that. I'm really struck by this whole idea of release versus heal. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I right. mean, they're similar, but they're different because heal implies something that somebody does. Release implies something really God does, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Well, the idea is that, that her condition was one of bondage. Mm-hmm. And you could see, I mean, Luke already implies that by the description of her, of her, of her physical body. condition. Yeah. 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 It, yeah. yeah. That's, that's really interesting. I like that. Okay. Yeah. So more than that, however, I think Jesus was making a statement about the connection between the Sabbath and the ministry of release, which is at the heart of the kingdom of God in Luke's gospel. So in view of her long suffering, Jesus asked what seems to be a self-evident question. Ought not this woman be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? And in doing so, Jesus counters the synagogue leader's attempt at providing an authoritative interpretation of the Sabbath command. He says, this daughter of Abraham ought to be set free, and again, Mm -hmm. the verb is luo, from her bondage on the Sabbath day. There we go. And again, he uses it, just like the synagogue leader had, he said that there are six days in which work ought to be done, using that impersonal verb, die. Well, Jesus uses the same impersonal verb, which implies a divine mandate. Oh, wow. There's a divine mandate that this daughter of Abraham ought to be set free on the Sabbath day. And so therefore, Jesus as Lord challenges the prevailing notions of honoring God on the Sabbath by insisting that his divine commission to affect the ministry of release that was inaugurating the kingdom of God ought to be fulfilled precisely on the Sabbath day. Wow, 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 wow. That is... Again, I told you that this has so much depth to you o- that you miss. It does on the first read. Well, we just kind of look o- overlook this, but you know Jesus is really confronting this kind of view of you don't do any work on the Sabbath day, and he's saying, yeah, you do the work of the kingdom of God on the Sabbath right. day. Right, right, right. <laughs> and so um, I, I don't think we should make too much of the fact that Jesus addresses them as you hypocrites here because. And yeah, I know last week we saw Jesus addressing the crowds as willfully ignorant of the signs of the kingdom around them. But this week, although his opponents were put to shame in verse 17, which implies that there were others present beside the synagogue leader, Luke goes on to say that the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things being done by him. And the language of wonderful things, uh, it's the verb, I mean, it's, it's the adjective endoxos implies their recognition that he was doing the work of God. Because this this word actually occurs a couple of times in the Septuagint in pretty significant cases to describe the wonderful things that God did. So these wonderful, again, this is a way uh, for them to praise God for what Jesus had done in releasing this woman from her bondage. Wow, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, So, I mean, I keep thinking with... There's a lot of directions you could go with this. There are. There are. And and actually, one of the things I wanted to mention is that when I preach on this text, I will very likely continue the reading until verse 21. Now, you know, both the parable and the of the mustard seed and the parable of the yeast are found in the synoptic gospel tradition in other contexts of Jesus' ministry. Um, Luke I think, intentionally connects them with the healing on the Sabbath. He says in verse 19, Therefore, mm-hmm. I say to you, and, and, and you know, the kingdom of God is like a, a, a mustard seed. And so I think Luke intentionally connects these two parables with the healing on the Sabbath in, in, in our passage for today in order to confirm that even such unlikely events as healing an invisible woman right. and healing her on the Sabbath in violation of conventional religious norms, constitute a glimpse into what the kingdom of God looks like, which, by the way, corresponds to the unlikely nature of comparing the kingdom of God to a mustard plant, which was a weed that most landowners in in that day were trying to get rid of, or the unlikely nature of comparing the kingdom of God to a woman working yeast into dough. Nobody would have thought to use a woman working working yeast into a dough in a kitchen mm -hmm. as as an image for the kingdom of God. Right, Right, right. And so even this, so this, just like the unlikely comparison of the mustard seed and and the woman working yeast into the dough, so this very unlikely event of healing a woman uh, who was really kind of invisible on the Sabbath day was what is presented as directly a, a manifestation of this is what the kingdom of God looks like. Wow. Yeah. 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 So then this passage, I think, highlights different approaches to the gospel studies. Mm -hmm. So, for example, a historical approach like form criticism or redaction criticism seeks to understand what happened and what was the origin of these 
these individual passages, which is likely why the Revised Common Lectionary did not include Luke 13, yeah, 18 to 21 in this Yeah, and it would make sense lesson. within a time frame when that was, right. was put together, right? right? But the, in more recent days, a narrative approach seeks to understand the text in light of the context in each gospel as a whole. So the idea is, you know, how do these passages right. function together in the flow of Luke's narrative? And it's clear that in right. the flow of Luke's narrative that we're meant to read the, the parable of right. the mustard seed and the woman working yeast into the dough, along with the healing a healing miracle, uh, and as well, we, we've also looked at we've also seen some evidence of a sociological approach that sheds light on the social and religious implication of Jesus' actions against the backdrop of the social, religious, and economic situation. To le- you know, and there are some people who I think overuse both the narrative and the sociological approach. Um, they, they almost, it's almost like someone who has a new hammer and they want to hammer everything with it, you know, instead of using the right tool. I think each of these are different tools, the historical approach, the narrative mm-hmm. approach, and the sociological approach. Each of these are different tools that give us different insights into the Gospels. And I think we see all three of them coming I, to bear I think in this so. passage. I think so, too. I think so, too. And, um, yeah, I, I think, um, I, I think too— and, at least, I, I think everybody knows when you're given the Revised Common Lectionary, you should be adding on verses or taking them away as it fits kind of what how God is leading you to, to talk about the passage. So, we do have that freedom. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we have, this is so much fun, as, as Alan pointed out, these three approaches, and you're going to see all kinds of things that come out from the Reformation from this. So we'll be back. Thanks, Christy. Hi, friends. We're back, and we are going to take a look at uh, some of the interesting themes, the interesting ways that the Reformers responded to their setting uh, in light of this passage. So, uh, Christy, um, uh, what did you find this week for us this week? Yeah, there's um, actually a lot, uh, a few themes that came out of today's reading. Um, first, the nature of disease. Second, teaching and the Sabbath. And third, the appropriate nature of the Sabbath. And I was reflecting on Alan's comment at the end on how there's all these different ways to read it. Well, I think what's interesting for the reformers is really how these things impact on different aspects of doctrine mm-hmm. um, and really how it comes down to us in terms of what might seem as a, as a, as a lesson about the kingdom gets taken up into practical matters within right. the church, within, within the practice of liturgy, within the practice, within the, within the practice of, mm-hmm. of Christianity. So it's, and it was, it's very, very deep, interestingly enough, from a passage again, that starts off seeming not that important. Yeah. So first, uh, in terms of disease, Calvin talks about the disease disclosed here as one inflicted by the devil. Uh, so he's using that traditional terminology, and he does say, uh, look, Luke does not tell us the nature of the woman's right. disease, but only described it as a, a woman with a spirit that had crippled her. Well, and, and Jesus says, this woman who was bound by Satan for right. 18 years. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, but what's interesting about that... Um, d- Jesus, he he doesn't go. He doesn't spend a lot of time on this on the Satan concept, which mm-hmm. I think people misunderstand. I mean, obviously that's part of the era that's in the scripture itself. Right. Um, but Calvin says, "Look, this is really Jesus showing how his divine divine power can triumph over evil or over right. the devil." Right. Um, and it's significance that he did this type of healing on the Sabbath, which was a spiritual matter. Um. The synagogue uh, represented not God's will, but the corrupt status quo that continued to oppress the poor. You know, and, and I've, I've found I've heard this kind of interpretation before. I think I think you know it's unfortunate that the synagogue in the New Testament sort of gets equated with the Roman Catholic Church in the in the era of the Reformation, and because these particular folks, you know, they rejoiced and and praised God. Right? Well, that I think he, I, I would. 
I think he's, yeah, I think he's really probably talking about the leaders, right? Sure, um, sure. The leaders had no need to be healed as it would undermine their power. Right. So there is more to this than just healing on the Sabbath, but rather there is a, be, a rebuke of the religious leadership and the steps that it had taken hold well, on that's kind of like you were observing in the earlier segment, you know, that, mm-hmm. that they had a vested interest in keeping her in her place mm-hmm. because that preserved the status quo. Purpose. And for, for Jesus to heal her upset all of that. I mean, and when you think about society as a whole, and in an era when you have haves and have nots, mm-hmm. it you there is this this sense of it, as long as we just administer to them, but to, to take them out of that space they're in, that that messes with the status quo. That messes up our whole society. We can't do that. And I think it's something we deal with today. Surely, um, surely. So. Um, I, I like this answer, actually. Uh, it avoids the understanding by the Roman Catholic Church that this is an exorcism. And, and that, that astounds me <laughs> that they re- read this as an exorcism. I yes. mean, obviously, Jesus is freeing her from the power of evil, but there's no, you know, there's no sense that she has an unclean spirit. She has a spirit of weakness, yeah. but not an unclean but spirit. This is, this is. Now, Calvin, of course, would see... Um, an exorcism as magic. And he saw this as an act of healing, but not of the kind of magic that he put, put with the exorcism. I do think uh, it is interesting in the commentaries, he does claim that the woman's illness is caused by the devil, but that does not mean that, that the devil needs to be cast out, only that God's healing needs to be present. Mm-hmm. He just doesn't go there. Um, it is as if Calvin does not want to give the devil that much power. And I, I like that. I mean, because that's kind of been yeah. my take on the devil yeah. in the New Testament. And, and Calvin yeah. would say would say that. And I think as a whole, when we get into that problem, like people worshiping the devil, they're so worried about the devil's power, they forget mm-hmm. about... Yeah. Um, they give the devil too the, much credit. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, while Calvin uses the language of the devil, it reads... Um, more of the sense of evil and mm-hmm. as and 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 not as a um the devil it's not as a come emanating from a devil but rather as maybe the absence of god's presence right um, well and you know i mean yeah jesus clearly uses the language of the devil and satan and and beelzebul and all yep. those kinds of language words but um you know the question in my mind has always been does he really endorse the kind of full-fledged demonology and satanology right. that that people buy right. into these days and really give the devil that too much credit I, you know and i would say calvin is kind of in that transition between kind of a medieval mindset and what's going to be a modern mindset about that but luther definitely would be in that camp L- mm. luther is seeing an active devil yeah. and an active um evil emanating from the devil and that's i i as i said we're in that that period in between um historically and and so we hear calvin using the language and yet we see him kind of moving out out of that kind of um uh, that kind of demonology if you will well i think and as i've said before i think it bears repeating here you know if there is a devil it is a created being and therefore it's limited it doesn't have omniscience omnipresence omnipotence those are qualities that belong only to god right and if there is a devil it is a defeated being because jesus has defeated the powers of evil with the cross and resurrection exactly exactly yeah um anyway what god calvin does say is that god's work should never be hindered on the sabbath and healing is evidence in his power is god's Work. Yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. In this passage, this this healing is God's work. I, you know, and I, I keep saying this. I feel like a broken record every time we do this. But the more I hear about Calvin, the more I learn about <laughs> Calvin, the more I just I, I really the real Calvin, right? Well, I mean, it just yeah. it just really uh, I, I I love hearing this because and I love the reform tradition that that we that we're a yeah, part of. me too. <laughs> and so when he says, "quote What are holy gatherings if people can't call on God for support?" Exactly right. Oh, love it. Yeah, I love that. Okay. Well, and I've always I've always put it. You know, what, what better way to honor God on the Sabbath than by doing God's work? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But I, I did want to talk more about this exorcism thing, and I looked at an article by um, a really renowned uh, Reformation historian named Bodin Nishan, um, who noted that exorcism was hotly debated in the Reformation mm. era, and according to Nishan, the practice of exorcism was part of the medieval liturgy of preparing catechumens for the church beginning in the mid third century. So in other 
words, this was really embedded in the church at an early date. And it was incorporated ultimately into the baptismal practice where a baby actually underwent an exorcism exorcism before she was baptized. That, that just, I find it so shocking that they would do that. I mean, it's even, <laughs> it's even to me, it's kind of creepy. It's creepy. That people would perform an exorcism on a baby. On a baby, yeah. And, and I mean, I get the whole... Um, Augustinian view of original sin, and you have to ba- baptize the child in order to in order to ensure that they're in a state of grace. But but an exorcism, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and it was and it becomes part of Lutheran doctrine as well. Remember, wow. I told you, Luther is still in this yeah. place, and yeah. he says, "Quote: I this is in the in the in the early um, liturgy." Quote, I abjure thee, thou unclean, unclean spirit, by the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This was part of the baptismal liturgy. Yep. Wow. In, the Lutheran, uh-huh, in, in Luther's, uh, Luther's liturgy. And so even though it was part of the liturgy, this is important, it was not considered central to the sacrament of baptism, and it could be left out. Mm. Um, it was considered at ad, aphora. And so uh, many Lutheran churches, even during Luther's lifetime, left it out. Yeah. However, many left it in. Um, our, ref- our Reformed tradition folks said, look, this has to be eliminated. Well, I mean, it's contrary to the whole notion. You mean, we're simply, we're, we're simply demonstrating by an outward sign the, the, right. the, the truth that God has chosen this child from before the foundation of the exactly. world. <laughs> so, so, what? Exactly. How, how does it have any kind of place exactly. in a baptism. So the debate over exorcism actually impacted discussions between the Reformed folks and the Lutheran folks in the 1580s and 90s. Mm. It's a big, big deal. This is the period of confessionalization right. where they start to really define what they are. And there was a big there was a big desire to show what how you were different instead of kind of saying, well, we kind of agree on this. It was, no, this is something that the Lutherans did and something the Reformed did not do. Mm-hmm. And the Lutherans were afraid by not having this exorcism practice in there that they were really um, crypto-Reformed, huh. crypto-Calvinists, wow. what they called them. Wow. And it became, and, and there was a big worry then that they were going to adopt all these other Calvinist practices that took them away from what they saw was the true faith. Calvinists in disguise. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> and it became a really, really big deal. Hmm. Um, and it, it actually started to wane in the later 17th century. Um, and this is, of course, it, we've ta- as we've talked before, at the end of the Thirty Years' War, when all of this, all of this fighting over religion kind of just stops, um, and uh, we get this turn to pietism where religion and belief kind of comes in. And we also see kind of the rise then of, of rationalism and the enlightenment mm. comes out of this. And so exorcism and enlightenment rationalism yeah, do not make together, sense together. Right, right. Um, but I do think it's interesting. We see this kind of renewed emphasis on exorcism in the revival movements of the Americas. Mm-hmm. And it's picked up again, actually now, if you've been paying attention in this kind of age of skepticism we're in. Yeah, yeah. So really interesting, this something that I hadn't thought much about. Sure. Um, a second theme is the nature of the Sabbath. Um, obviously, the practice of Sabbath is one of the topics that did come up in the Reformation. What is it? How is a Christian to celebrate it? And what did the Bible call for? And you can imagine that folks in the Reformation explored the entirety of this topic. Um, and I bring it up today because... This goes on today, too. You sure, know? Uh, sure. What does it mean? Uh, what do you need for Sabbath? Does it need to be on Sunday? Do you need it to take special time for God? Can Does it matter? Do you? All these questions are coming up. Should it be what on Saturday? What can you and what can yeah. you not do? Yeah. So I did some primary source work. Um, I noted that the Reformers make um, a special note that Jesus does teach on the Sabbath, mm-hmm. right? Yep. He attends synagogues and uses his opportunity to teach. Um this, of course, is the background for the scripture reading and the pastoral teaching that is central to the Protestant service. 
Sure. And it's a shift from the Roman Catholic Mass, where the Mass is actually takes precedence over mm-hmm. teaching. And we've talked about that before, where most of the preaching in the vernacular was done outside of the of mm. the service, if yeah. you will. They had um, separate kinds of, of of spaces where people would come and listen to someone preach. Yeah, just out, out in the open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Historian James Ford estimated, for example, that Heinrich Bullinger preached six times weekly in an and in 44 years of ministry, preached over 7,000 sermons. Wow. And Calvin, around um, 286 sermons a year for about 4,000 sermons That's in his incredible. life. And these are not short 10-minute deals. These are long. Sometimes this would go on for an hour, hour and a half. So these are really long um, uh, expositions yeah. often. Uh, um, so it's... Um, you have this this huge difference, obviously, then between a Roman Catholic service with a mass, right. and then what becomes a Protestant service is going to emphasize the sermon itself. Right. Well, I, and and the Roman Catholic service would have still been in Latin. Absolutely. And so the whole point is not that you understand what is said, but the whole point is that you're there and that you take the you take exactly. the Eucharist. Exactly. And it's that whole process of that whole salvation cycle we've talked mm-hmm. about over and over. Um, that becomes central to the, the faith instead of, um, instead of the preaching of the gospel sure. and, and the, the, the actual presence of the Holy Spirit in that preaching. So very different theological emphases are right. there. And we see that, we've talked about this before, in, in the actual architecture of the buildings where, you know, remember, you get in the Reformed tradition the pulpit right in the middle Mm-hmm. of the space mm-hmm. with really no art forms around it. And while most of our Presbyterian churches have kind of shied from that, there are some of our evangelical friends are going back to that. Oh, really? There's literally just a, a lectern right in the middle of a, of, of a, of a space. I wow. mean, mm. so it's really kind of interesting. Um, so uh, obviously we've talked at length about the necessity of scripture and of vernaculars uh, so lay people could read, but it's also accompanied by printing sermons. Yeah. Um, and before you could turn onto YouTube or listen to a podcast, you published sermons right. and sold copies. And so I did a really quick search on the holdings of the Herzog August Bibliothek um, from 1520 to 1580. And I found 773 German sermon publications during that period. Wow. And that's just German, right? right? Um, there's all these other languages I didn't even look up. Um, and, you know, we're talking about still smaller print runs than a modern, really modern day. Sure. You know, it's a lot harder to print things. And yet they're publishing that kind of sermon output. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was just very quickly. And if we did a whole thing, we'd find, uh, you know, really extensive sales of these things. So Mm -hmm. it's crazy. Um, And Luther knew full well that published sermons were central to teaching Reformation. Yeah, I can understand that, definitely. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Finally, the third theme is on on the Sabbath itself. Uh, (laughs) And there's always been discussion amongst Christian groups as what is the appropriate day for the Christian Sabbath. And, of course, there have been groups from the beginning of the church who believe the Sabbath should always be the same as the Jewish Sabbath. Yeah. Um, as we know, we have groups today that practice this, um, you know, the Seventh-day Adventists, which are right. very prominent in this area, and it is called Sabbatarianism. Um, there were several fringe groups um, in the Reformation. Now, again, mainstream reformers following the tradition of the church did not fall into this, but some of the radicals, some of the Anabaptist groups did. Mm. The most interesting, I want to tell you this because it's interesting history, but I think it tells us a lot about how these historical um, events kind of walk into the modern day. So one of the interesting groups I read about um, in the Encyclopedia of the Reformation and as well as William's Radical Reformation were the Unitarians of Transylvania who believed that the law of God was eternal and thus believed in strict adherence to Jewish law and tradition. They were part of the Unitarian Church until 1623 when they were expelled and persecuted. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, especially when you think of today's Unitarians, right. which, which right. tend to be pretty open. Right. And this gets more interesting as these folks worshipped underground within the context of one of the recognized groups 
for example, they were they believed in this, but they were acting as Lutherans or as Reformed or as even Roman Catholics. Mm-hmm. Um, but in 1867, they were uh, by, allowed by the Austro-Hungarian Empire to come out and it rec- be recognized as proselyte Jews. Wow! So they actually created a synagogue and they actually started to basically take on a, a Jewish style service, but they recognized they were Gentiles, that they had become mm. Jewish. Yeah. Um, however, when the Nazis occupied Austria in 1941, they had to reconvert to Christianity or be deported. Sure. Um, and to prove to their commitment, they had to burn down their own synagogue. Wow. So mm. interesting yeah, stuff definitely. that comes in there. Well, and, you know, yeah, everybody knows about the Seventh-day Adventists, but there are seven other Seventh-day groups. Absolutely. That, that yeah. are out there. Yeah. yeah. Um, so... Now, I, I talked about this kind of um, extreme end of Reformation practice, but Sabbatarianism is not necessarily unique um, to, the, to these kind of radical groups, um, mm-hmm. but also refers to the work on, be, that is done on Sunday right. and reflects like the blue laws that prohibit certain activities on Sunday. Even today. Uh-huh. And yeah. I pulled up go, Google blue laws today and you can pick up a little map that has many many states still don't sell liquor on sunday or sunday morning or um i loved i didn't know vehicles they have vehicles can't be sold right on on sundays um so and i know even in small towns around us there's still some blue laws in 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 town um municipalities but uh and municipal codes i uh our, our state does not have um, any right now, um, per se. Uh, but uh, if you look, it's about half and half. Yeah. They have some blue laws still yeah. on the on the books. Yeah. Um, and uh, anyway, uh, the practice of this kind of, I would say kind of started in Roman Catholic traditions. It was simply a day that people had off so they, they could go to worship. Um, mm-hmm. And... Uh, but as cities start to emerge, there's more and more people actually started to do work on Sunday. Um, and I found this really nice article by Douglas Backenridge, and this is an older article, but he was looking at 16th century Scotland, and I'm telling this for all these Presbyterians out there. And we find that um, our Scots, uh, Scots confession emphasized the Ten Commandments and the idea that work should not be done on the Sabbath. However, after that piece, however... Um, um, there came to be more idea that you could work as long as you left this period, shorter period, to give time to God um, it, it, during that day. So by the time we get the, to the second Helvetic confe- confession, we get this idea that, look, you should set aside the Lord's Day, or, for, or at least that time for worship, and holy rest, which meant you could do charity, but you can't lay around. <laughs> really? Yeah. 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 Um, it shouldn't fill it with superstition about why you're doing it. And um, it should not be holier than any other day. Um, the Lord's Day is pr- to preserved and not the Jewish Sabbath. Yeah. Over the course of the mid-17th century, it came to include what you could and could not do on Sunday. And as this is when the Presbyterians are trying to define themselves from the Puritans, and at least folks, um, some, of the, some of the folks like James I, King James Bible and right. Charles the first were absolutely against the Sabbatarian practices of the growing Puritans. Mm-hmm. And so they were actually advocating and they're the Scots remember, cause James the first comes down. Sure. He's the first one to unite England and Scotland into one kingdom kingdom. And so he's like, look, I don't want you Scots restricting yourself on, on, on Sunday activities, go ahead and work. And even John Knox, um, who was before that, but he himself questioned Sabbatarian practice um, and wanted to limit it just to worship itself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, good for him. I know. So in other words, these wild Scott Presbyterians were initially um, saying, look, you need to set aside worship time, but you, you can work on the Sabbath, which mm. is really interesting. Um, it's going to be really w- with the Westminster 
confessions that a more Sabbatarian kind wow. of restrictions, like 24-hour restrictions are going to come and to hold not only on the on the Congregationalists, but also on the Presbyterians well, and who I find adopt it, it. I find it fascinating that the Second Helvetic Confession, you know, speaks of the holy rest as not idleness, but <laughs> doing the Lord's yeah. work. Doing right? the Lord's work. And mm-hmm. that... And that one day is not holier than the other. I mean, that's, yes. that, that's straight from Paul. Exactly. In, in Romans. Exactly. Yeah. Don't uphold this. And it's it's saying, look, God is supposed to be working in your life all the time. Right. And it also plays into this idea of the Protestant work ethic again. Your work is God's work. Yeah, sure. So this is John Knox says, you need to spend time to listen to the gospel. But when you are working, if you are truly a man or woman of God, you are doing the work that God has called you to do. Surely, mm-hmm. surely. Yeah. Okay, yeah, thanks, Christy. Thanks. Hi, friends. We're back, and um, we're going to reflect on what all this has to do with us today. And I was, uh, most of you know, I started my career in the, in the Southern Baptist world in Texas, and um, I, uh, when I was in college, I pastored a little country church uh, that was in, in the hill country in the central Texas. And um, there was a woman there who was 88 years old. And she talked about how when she was a little girl, um, the only thing they could do on Sunday was go to church and read the Bible. <laughs> and that was all they were allowed to do. They weren't allowed to go outside and play. They weren't allowed to play cards or games. They weren't allowed to do, you know, any of that kind of stuff. And um, this was a this was a situation where we had to drive like 90 miles. I had to drive 90 miles to get there. And so I came in the morning for church, and then I stayed at somebody's house for the day, and then we had an evening service, and I went back. And um, whoever's house I stayed at, you know, fed me and, and she, oh, the food that she fed me was always something she had cooked the day before because she still was in that pattern yeah. of, you know, not doing work, quote unquote, on the Sabbath. Isn't it interesting? Yeah. I bet there are a lot of long, slow walks to the outhouse on those days. <laughs> Probably, <laughs> For yeah. For the kids. Probably. I mean, yeah, thinking about, um, I mean, I guess what a lovely devotion, but on the other hand, how many young people just didn't want anything to do with it at the end of the day? I mean, well, it struck me as something that was more restrictive than freeing. Right, right. It's 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 more of a law about. That's, yeah, it's more a bondage rather than release. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And uh, but on the other on the other hand, one could you know one of the problems we deal with at the church now is that. Families aren't making time for worship. I mean, right. they're simply, oh, well, we have football, we have basketball, and right. all those things. Society has changed, so it doesn't recognize a universal time for us to worship as a group, and it, I, I think it causes some new, other additional problems. Yeah, you know? I think so too. Um, because if your kids are so are busy with with sports, and then they can't make it to church, then they aren't making those relationships that help make church such a special place. Sure. And when that no longer becomes valued, then we have a whole new issue. So uh, it's a, um, there's some interesting, interesting challenges. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it, it, I mean, it contributes to sort of the post Christian. It really does. Uh, nature of our society. It really does. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, um, uh, it seems I'm always struck by. Um, it seems like the the churches that already have a full congregation, well, it seems to be a place to be. So they tend to get more who come mm-hmm, there. Mm-hmm. But those who have more that are dedicated not to being present, then they tend to have less. I mean, it's a yeah. strange. It's just a strange. Um, it's a strange thing about our human nature, like that. Surely, it's, it's just the play. It's, it's, it reminds me of the club scenes they talk about. You know, mm-hmm. the the clubs where people will wait in line mm-hmm. indefinitely to get in one club, then go to a different club where they could actually get in and have fun. I right. mean, what right. is that about our personality? We want to be where where something's it's going on. It's the place to it's be. The place to be. But anyway, and so making church the place to be, well, it was easy to make it the place to be when it was the only place to be. Sure. You know what I mean? Sure. Exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot to, there's a lot to Sabbath. And I, 
I think we, we as we talked beforehand, the word Sabbath has kind of taken on a, uh, well, take your own Sabbath somewhere. It's becoming a self-care word. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think sort it, of been co-opted. It has yeah. been, it has been. And, and while I do think it's important to take time for God for yourself, I don't think that's the full call. Part of the Sabbath is the community that, exactly. that is built. Exactly. You know? um, well, and I love that statement in the Second Helvetic uh, Confession about, you know, that it's for holy rest, which means doing the work of the Lord. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Which, if you're doing the work of the Lord... Um, you you may be spending some of that time in prayer, but you're not spending alone being selfish about it, right? right? So you're praying for others. You are, or maybe you're doing some type of charity work, which mm-hmm. is with and for others. Yes, so it's not the kind of selfishness that, that gets kind of involved with, oh, this is when I, This you is know, my time. My time, me time, <laughs> yeah, right? right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I think you're right. I think some of the current usages are maybe a little dangerous, but on the other hand, equally the kind of, of, of rigid, Mm -hmm. um, space that this woman had to endure. Right. Well, and you know, the thing that has always struck me about Jesus and the Sabbath was that he saw absolutely no contradiction between, you know, the, the, the things that he was doing, uh, doing the work of the Lord, right. carrying out the ministry of release, you know, for example, in this case, um, and essentially basically um, uh, placing a value on human beings and, and, and carrying out that, that ministry of valuing human beings as opposed to, you know, the devaluing systems of our world. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. And, you know, sh- in, you know in, in communicating that value to them in a community kind of way. Um, and, and you know, the, the Jewish leaders consistently push back at him for, for breaking the Sabbath. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because in John's gospel, Jesus says, well, my father is working even until now, and so I'm, I'm working. And the idea right. is, you know, do you think God really stopped doing anything right, right. at all, you know, right. on the seventh day of creation, that God is somehow inactive now? No, God is constantly, always, yeah, working, always working. And, and so, you know, I am going to, to, to be in, you know, I've been called to be a part of that work. And right. so have, in fact, so have all of us. Right. <laughs> well, and we talked about, you know, is one day holier than the others. And I do think there's a sense, another abuse of Sabbath is, oh, I could be a really horrible person all week. As long as I go to church right, every Sunday right. and, and, and God forgives me of my sins, I'm, I'm good. And I think there's a mistake there too. You see that a lot. It's, it's where uh, some of the obligatory attitudes that I see, right. particularly um, in, in some traditions where it's like, oh, this is my holy obligation. I'm going to go and I'm going to be really good. But then what you do the rest of the week doesn't reflect right. Right. doesn't reflect God's work. No, so I like I mean, the Calvinist view about that, you know. Well, yeah, because it's part of a, a whole pattern of living that is or aligned with the kingdom of God and with this whole this whole th- idea of the ministry of release mm-hmm. from bondage, you know. Yeah, yes, and, yes. And, and, and you, know, I, you know, I think about that, and I think, you know, there is a lot of consistency between that and the whole idea of justification justification by grace through faith because yeah. that releases us from all kinds of bondage about you know right. what it what it means to be rightly related to God but um, you know then we get to sort of live that freedom out in our lives and it's, it's you know as, as Paul would say it's not a freedom to do whatever you please right. it, it, it's right. a, you know it's it's more of a freedom to live in a way that is truly loving right and, right and and the way in which God intended for us to live yeah yeah yeah. And, and Sabbath is, I think, part of that, that call and that reminder and that practice of, of living out God's call, right? Yeah. Living out that grace. I, I see Sabbath as orienting oneself yeah, toward I God agree. and toward God's kingdom. I and, agree. And what God's doing, you know, in, in, in related to the kingdom in this world. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I agree. And uh, that's, that's a... That's a bigger definition than any of the others that we've really seen or sure. provided. I mean, I think others have been in that space. I don't think we're like remarkably brilliant about it. It's just that mm-hmm. I think we tend to get too narrow. And I saw it with the, the, the kinds of responses of the reformers about right. it. And um, and even in our scripture today, sure. before Jesus, you know, the, 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 the synagogue, synagogue leader. leaders sure. were also 
they didn't get it, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I just, I think about, you know, that, that whole, I mean, just the beautiful image of release that, that Jesus, you know, communicates. Um, and, and, you know, the, the passage, the healing passage was about release Right. And we saw this as, you know, in connection with the parables, this is what the kingdom of heaven, this is what the kingdom of right. God looks like. Right, right, right. And so, I mean, if, if this is what the kingdom of God looks like, then we have the freedom to to join in that and, and to be a part of that now. We, we don't have to be bound by the um, uh, assumptions or expectations or restrictions that others might want to put on us. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's sort of a, um, uh, Paul has this, um, Paul has this saying about all, you know, some people see one day as better than the others. And, and, um, all, pe- some people treat all days as equal in Romans fourteen five, And he says, let all be fully convinced in their own minds. Mm-hmm. So in other words, if you think one day is more holy and you need to observe it, fine. You know, make it something that's a matter of conscience. If you if you think that every day is alike, fine. Make it a matter of conscience. Mm-hmm. And and so you know, it's it's. I think I think there's room for some flexibility in this. But the point is that however you observe the Sabbath, you're you're doing it to align your life with God right. and with with God's kingdom yeah. and what God is doing in the world. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, thanks, Alan. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.